Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the show that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full time. Unchained and Unconfirmed are now published as videos. If you're not yet subscribed to the Unchained YouTube channel, head to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained podcast and subscribe today. With Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin while offsetting your carbon footprint and delivering solar energy to the world. Unconfirmed listeners get their first solar cell free by visiting sunexchange.com slash unconfirmed. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn and spend crypto. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now. Today's guest is Michael Morrow, Chief Executive Officer at Genesis. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Laura. Good to be here. Let's start with the big news this week. Tesla bought $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin and also added Bitcoin as a form of payment. You started Genesis as the first digital asset trading desk all the way back in 2013, which was quite a different era in Bitcoin. And the industry back then looked quite different. And so I just wondered, given your experience in the trenches of this industry for so long, what would you say is the significance of Tesla, one of the biggest companies in the world, putting some of its reserves into Bitcoin? So you're right. Um, we started the first um, OTC desk in Bitcoin back in 2013. So call it, you know, eight years ago now. Um, and, you know, if you were to say, hey, you know, Tesla or any company like that would be putting Bitcoin onto their corporate balance sheet um, back then, I don't think I would have believed you, right? <laughs> you, you, you think about trading firms, you think about asset managers and, and hedge funds, um, corporates, you know, that, that that wasn't sort of a target audience, certainly at the time. Um, and, you know, but like we and, and, and I'm excited to kind of talk about this because the, the, the Tesla thing is, is is a result. Right. It's it's a buildup and an evolution of the asset class, um, as well as kind of the market infrastructure, which led to Tesla's investment in, 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 on Bitcoin that got announced this week. And so it's certainly come a, a tremendous, you know, uh, uh, you know evolution and, and progress within the ecosystem. And, and, and the exciting thing about it is, yes, it's great. You know, Elon Musk and Tesla and a billion and a half big number. This is just the beginning. Right. And, and you know, uh, love to kind of chat about all of that today. Yeah. So your company actually has a new offering that relates directly to this news. But before we do that, why don't we just give the audience an overview of what products and services Genis has been offering over this time? So um, as, as I mentioned, um, we started our, our Bitcoin trading desk in 2013, um, really kind of catering towards high net worth individuals and whatever sort of adventurous institutional accounts wanted to buy Bitcoin back in 2013. 
Um, and, and this is when the price of Bitcoin was around $80. And, you know, for, for us, you know, we said, hey, there's no block trading in Bitcoin really kind of happening. And the only real exchanges that had volume were Mt. Gox and Bitstamp, right? That was pretty <laughs> much the only two that were around at the time. And we said, okay, if, if Bitcoin is to be an institutional asset class, um, we were a broker dealer. So we had sort of the regulatory oversight from SEC and, and FINRA. Let's be the broker dealer in Bitcoin. Let's be the trusted regulated counterparty and try to get as many of kind of the, the hedge funds and institutions and high net worth guys to kind of get involved. Right. So and, you know, we started it knowing that, like, hey, maybe Bitcoin goes to zero. And I know we still talk about that today as a possibility, um, even though every day that, you know, Bitcoin doesn't go to zero, it's, it's, it becomes less likely that it does. But back then, that was a real thing, right? The mm-hmm. possibility of an $80 Bitcoin going to zero was far greater than what it is today. And, and frankly, you know, at Mt. Gox happened, right? Less than a year after we traded, uh, launched the desk. And so, and we're like, oh, maybe this is it. Maybe this is kind of the Bitcoin going <laughs> to zero moment, um, after kind of the big hack. And, and, you know, but like over time, trading was really what we focused on. We said, hey, let's try to build some holders. Let's kind of transition Bitcoin from the early, early guys, right, into the real early guys um, and saying, <laughs> OK, let's kind of help facilitate that, that transaction. Um, but OTC trading was all we did, right, in, in from 2013 to 2018, really. And, and why? Because the market wasn't ready for anything else. For us to try to build kind of the traditional institutional market infrastructure in Bitcoin in 2014, 15, 16, and anything else other than block trading would have been premature. 2017 changed the game. The last kind of the bull market really, yes, it was retail focused. And we saw a lot of the kind of the ICOs and whatnot, but it really kind of you know raised press awareness. Um, it certainly raised attention of GPs at hedge funds and who really kind of took notice of kind of crypto as an asset class really for the first time and got involved personally. And once they got involved personally in kind of 2017, it opened up the possibility that maybe they'll put it in their fund, right? And the institutional kind of the pie of institutions willing to get involved really kind of increased at that point in time. Then we launched our lending business in 2018. That was really a function because, hey, now there are more institutions getting involved. Maybe people would want to hedge. Maybe people would want to start shorting. And we've really kind of been of the view that a two-way price discovery is perfectly normal, natural, and healthy for the, the ecosystem to ultimately survive and evolve into an institutional asset class. Yet there wasn't a way to do it. Right. We had BitMEX for a long time as kind of the derivative platform for hedging and shorting. Um, CME introduced uh, the Bitcoin futures product at the end of 2017. Um, but in early 2018, there was no way to do it in the spot market. And so we said, OK, let's create this borrowing lending market around crypto. We get, you know, stock loans and, 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 and borrowing stock exists in other markets. Let's bring this to crypto. So we launched our lending business in 2018. And then we bolted on custody um, in May of last year. Um, we acquired a digital asset custodian called Vault based in the UK. And then we also launched a derivatives trading desk. Um, so we, we got involved in, in facilitating transactions of options uh, in crypto also in May of last year. 
So what we are today, so we are a crypto prime broker. We are, we facilitate spot and derivative transactions, both buying and selling. We offer the ability to borrow and lend crypto and U.S. dollars backed by crypto collateral. We also custody assets for third parties. We have clients um, taking advantage of the ability to buy on Genesis, lend some of their assets through the platform, or have just Genesis custody as a one-stop shop prime broker platform geared entirely towards institutions. And so your latest offering is Genesis Treasury. How did you come to launch that? And what does that service offer? So, you know, for, for, for a long time, I think when we thought about possible buyers, possible people who might be interested in the asset class, as I mentioned, corporates were not really on a roadmap. Uh, and, and really, you know, I think Michael, uh, you know, Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy kind of like changed the game. Um, as it relates to possibilities of what Bitcoin might be able to do. And, and really when he, you know, and his firm kind of took their, their firm position in Bitcoin and, and obviously kind of doing it at the scale and magnitude that, that they decided to kind of jump, you know, I say jump in with both feet. I feel like if he had more feet than that, he'd jump in with more, <laughs> right? Like, you know, and, and, and really doing I it. I think, I think it really kind of said the, well, wait a minute. You know, maybe we're, we've been missing out on a potential market segment here. Maybe we've been, hey, you know, too narrow in thinking about who could do this, who could own this. Um, and so we said, okay, let's start targeting this. Let's, let's say, hey, if you're a corporate CEO, CFO, or treasurer, um, now there's this idea around Bitcoin as a corporate treasury asset is a thing. It is happening um, and it should be on your radar because if you don't, other people will. And, and to date, the market has given you credit. The stock market has rewarded you for having Bitcoin on your balance sheet or having some sort of Bitcoin or blockchain play uh, as part of your products and uh, products and services and said, okay, let us be the one to educate you. Let us be the one to tell you how all of this works, the trading and the custody aspect. Yes, of course. But these are corporates. These are larger companies with compliance departments, with finance and accounting and legal. Let us hold your hand. Let us explain to you everything you need to know and really kind of pass on all of the knowledge that we've gained in our eight years of doing this to help you allocate some percentage of your corporate treasury into Bitcoin. I think that's what really what this offering kind of this, this effort is really all about. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit more about corporate interest in Bitcoin. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. Back to my conversation with Michael Morrow. So what was so interesting about the story that you told is I actually thought you were going to say that you started getting more queries, but it was more like proactive from your end. Um, but then would you say that with all this news that, you know, this interest has picked up? And if so, what has that looked like inside of Genesis? I think the, 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 the beauty of, of, of Bitcoin really, and I'm reminded of this all the time, um, is that like, you know, we're a New York based company, 
um, with a lot of kind of and, and primarily our trading clients on the spot side are sort of U.S. based. So we tend to really have this like U.S. based lens when we kind of look through various market opportunities. What's been fascinating about this effort is as we were thinking about launching our kind of our marketing effort around treasuries, to your point, we were getting simultaneous inbound requests and the inbound requests from corporates were international. We were getting interest in saying, okay, yes, I get what Michael, you know, Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy have done, but I can do this if I'm sitting in Latin America. I can do yeah, this I if I'm sitting in Southeast like Asia, right? The corporate equivalence of Wences Casares or something. Uh, absolutely. There's kind of the, the patient zero, right? In, in right, the corporate right. world and kind of the, the Michael Saylors and said, I subscribe. I believe that makes sense to me. Um, and yes, I can sit, you know, somewhere around the world and do this. And so what we realized was kind of the opportunity is really global and it's not really like industry specific. Right. Any level of company, public or private, have the ability to do it. And so we've really been hard at work. Look, Bitcoin, you know, hit, you know, its all time high this morning um, yet again. And and there was lots of news around, you know, BNY Mellon and kind of their the crypto custody product and all of it at the same time. You know, so we're busy servicing a lot of trades, but we're really also busy answering these questions from these corporations. Um, how do we do this? What do we need to learn? Um, help me educate my board, right? And so it really, the transaction is the last piece of it. It's really kind of the education and kind of getting them comfortable with the entire process that we're really, really busy doing. And you spoke at MicroStrategy's Bitcoin for Corporations event last week. Would you say that that kind of kicked off a new wave of interest? Or did you see that based on even like news from Square and Mass Mutual and Ruffer and the others? Um, like what have been kind of the catalysts that you've noticed? It's interesting. So um, the the inbound requests um, and, and kind of the corporations we've been working with preceded the, 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 the MicroStrategy event. Ah. Um, however, at the same time, the Bitcoin for Corporation event really kind of allowed people to appreciate is that is, is kind of the, you know, Bitcoin as collateral narrative. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, we launched our lending business, you know, three years ago. Um, and, you know, a big portion of our current lending business is folks that are posting their Bitcoin that they've purchased as collateral and borrowing U.S. dollars against it. And the idea that Bitcoin is good collateral is new. Certainly as treasurers and CFOs are getting up to speed on Bitcoin in the asset class, I think a part of them are like, okay, great. Let's say I lock up whatever, 5, 10, 20% of my corporate treasury reserves in Bitcoin. Let's say I do it. What if I have U.S. dollar expenditures? What if I have to tap into my treasury to meet some expense or to do something else um, related to corporate development? Um, do I have to sell my Bitcoin? Right. And, and obviously mm-hmm. selling the Bitcoin to get it U.S. dollars has, has tax consequences um, yeah. up or down. And, and I think people are like, wait a minute, I can get access to U.S. dollars without selling my Bitcoin. Um, is, is a newer concept. And, and I think, so people now are like, so I'm not locked into Bitcoin so, and I don't have to actually sell it to get liquidity um, is part of the kind of the education process. Again, as people really learn how far this industry has come, this was not a thing 2015, 2016, 
this ability to kind of borrow and lend against Bitcoin as collateral is really sort of a manifestation of just the last couple of years of development that's happened in the space. Um, and, that, and, and that's what I tried to highlight, you know, in my session um, with at the MicroStrategy event was, hey, you can borrow against this. And arguably, Bitcoin is the best collateral in the world um, for anything, being that it trades 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it trades billions and billions of dollars every day. Um, and what other asset can you get liquidity on at 3 a.m. on a Sunday morning, right? You can't, um, right. Except, except in Bitcoin. I, so I totally understand everything you're saying. I can imagine there would be this demand. I just wonder how the conversations would be different if it were kind of like, um, you know, right after what looked like to be some kind of peak, um, because, you know, we've all seen Bitcoin tends to trade, of course, in this upward trend, but there have been times when it's probably been trading below um, what its value probably is and then above also, you know, uh, what what its value probably is. And so what do you imagine a conversation would be like with a corporation at that time? Um, would it simply be that, you know, the, the ratio of any loans they might take out has to be within a certain range or that, you know, what they put in a Bitcoin should not be money that they would want to touch for X number of time, you know, time period or, or whatever? I think all of the kind of the volatility market risk related to kind of putting Bitcoin in their balance sheet is also part of the education process, right? Um, you know, MicroStrategy went kind of like full bore 100% of their corporate treasury and took out debt on top to go buy more Bitcoin, right? Um, that's on one hand. Um, However, and- their timing is so good that this is, you know, prob- probably not going to be an issue for them. But anyway. It's probably right. But at the time, you know, that's a significant risk as a publicly traded company to be able to do. Right. And then on the other hand, you had Square that I think put 1%, right, of kind of their corporate treasury into Bitcoin. So and, and there you go. You have one percent to a hundred percent. There's now a full spectrum of possibilities, and I think some within that band, a company is able to figure out what level of participation in Bitcoin is comfortable for their risk appetite, right? That's uh, and and to kind of be able to deal with the volatility. And two, as it relates to the loan to value question, as as related to the loans, yes, your loan to value absolutely matters, which is why for us. Um, you know, we are certainly lending at, you know, um, over collateralized to Genesis. Mm. So folks are posting more in Bitcoin as collateral than they are getting in, in, in dollars in the loan. And there's, uh, you know, uh, obviously margin calls should the price of Bitcoin fall, meaning the price of the collateral falls within a certain band and they'll be posting additional collateral to Genesis. At the same time, LTV also affects the interest rate. Right. Um, the, the more they are putting as Bitcoin and collateral, um, the, the less risky a loan it is certainly to the Genesis. Um, and so we were able to offer a lower interest rate for the client to be able to, to, to do with their U.S. dollars. So ultimately, you know, there is an LTV conversation to be had and, and there are certainly benefits to posting more Bitcoins, um, and kind of be able to enjoy that U.S. dollar at a lower rate. But frankly, what else are you doing with your Bitcoins? Right. It's, it's, it's sitting in cold storage in, in, in some facility. Um, and so this is a way for them to be able to be put some of that Bitcoin to work. And another issue that publicly traded companies holding Bitcoin will have to deal with. And so this is from my understanding. So please correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, but 
for with gap accounting rules, mm-hmm. um, you know, the value of the Bitcoins by the end of the quarter will be determined by the lowest value at which they were traded mm-hmm. in the quarter. And so obviously that seems, you know, like a negative aspect for those corporations. But is there any other way around it? Or is there any situation in which that could be a positive? Or do you think that potentially the rules around this might change or... Yeah, I think you're, you're referring to kind of the lower of cost or market um, as kind of the accounting methodology within GAP to account for Bitcoin as an intangible on your balance sheet. And, 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 and frankly, you have to do it this way as a corporation because investing in Bitcoin is not their core business, right? Um, if it was their core business, then accounting treatment would be different. Uh, but for this, you know, they have other business lines in fintech or tech or, or IT related businesses. And certainly... You, you, gap accounting kind of gets companies to react that way. It's good in a way because, um, you know, most of these companies are not playing this for the, you know, the, the short term game, right? The, the, you book the asset uh, on, on, on your books. And certainly if it trades down, gap accounting forces you to kind of recognize the unrealized loss. Um, and kind of book it that way. But if price appreciates, the, the highest you can book it at is the price you paid for the asset. And you can't really realize the benefit of it until you are either selling it and, and, and kind of realizing the ultimate gain. Uh, accounting itself, I don't think actually drives the reason for an investment decision. And it certainly shouldn't be the reason why you do anything is kind of either favorable or unfavorable accounting treatment. Ultimately, these companies have conviction. These companies are willing to put, um, you know, especially these publicly traded companies are putting shareholder value money into working Bitcoin have to have that certain level of conviction. So yes, um, you know, the accounting is kind of the temporary, what does it look like on your balance sheet? Um, but the ultimate reason to do it is much greater than that is kind of the idea around, hey, we really kind of believe in Bitcoin and this is a long-term hold play. And so I don't really kind of need to, to mark to market my intangibles um, all the time to kind of appreciate, you know, to show what, you know, how smart an investment it was that we made. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, for um, any shareholder who would freak out about that, then they, they probably don't understand the value proposition of Bitcoin. So, all right. Well, so I wondered, you know, from your institutional niche within Bitcoin, what do you expect to happen over the next year? So, I mean, I, I said earlier, at the, right at the beginning about, um, you know, Tesla's investment kind of just being just the beginning. Um, and, and it's funny, throughout 2020, throughout last year, we talked about um, the, the macro investors, kind of the legendary John, you know, Paul Tudor Jones and the, and the Stanley Druckenmillers kind of coming out and saying, hey, I, I'm long Bitcoin or I'm a believer in Bitcoin, gave cover, right, to mm-hmm. other macro guys to start investing in Bitcoin. It was no longer strange. Um, and, and I really do think kind of the, the Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey coming out and, and saying, but put Bitcoin in the balance gives corporates cover, um, to do just the same there. And, and, and frankly, it's, it's funny. Now the media narrative is why aren't you putting Bitcoin on your balance sheet, CFO? You know, it's, it's, it's turned around so much so that like every interview right now that's happening, that question gets asked. And so I fully expect, um, companies to continue to, to do this. Um, and as I said earlier, the, the phenomenon is global. The, this isn't just a, a U.S. only thing. I think we'll continue to see um, the, the, the corporates kind of putting Bitcoin onto their treasury, especially in countries um, where their fiat value is kind of depreciating much, much faster than just kind of holding uh, the U.S. dollar. 
Yeah. Yeah. I expect the same. I actually honestly saw a few mainstream stories going the other direction. And I was like, I don't think you're talking to the right people because they don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> there but are anyway. lots, a lots of companies we're working yes. with. Um, and this is a, this is a movement. This is happening. Um, and uh, like I said, I think it's one of these, you know, you either kind of run with it and, and adapt uh, or, or get left behind. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, this has been so fun. Thank you so much for coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you so much for having me. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Join thousands of people from around the world who are earning Bitcoin while creating a more sustainable energy future with Sun Exchange. On the Sun Exchange platform, you can easily buy solar cells that power schools, businesses, and other organizations in sunny emerging markets. You'll earn Bitcoin for 20 years from the clean energy you generate while offsetting your carbon footprint. Unconfirmed listeners get their first solar cell free by visiting sunexchange.com slash unconfirmed. That's S-U-N-E-X-C-H-A-N-G-E dot com slash unconfirmed. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline, big banks and credit card giants continue swiping right on crypto. Bank of New York Mellon, the nation's oldest bank and a custodian of $41 trillion in assets, is making a move into crypto. According to the Wall Street Journal, the bank will hold, transfer, and issue Bitcoin and other cryptos on behalf of its clients. But we are starting with the anchor in this space, which is custody, Mike Demacy, head of Advanced Solutions at BNY Mellon, told Coindesk. He went on, Then it comes down to what our clients need from us. So that's not just safekeeping of these assets. They want to leverage them for lending purposes. They want to leverage them for collateral. Then we are also looking at issuing digital assets, like tokenized securities, real assets. BNY is the first large U.S.-based custodian to release a plan for storing crypto as it would any other asset. Although BNY declined to say which crypto-native companies it is using to build out its solution, it did confirm that the bank is relying on outside partners. MasterCard announced it will offer its merchants the option to receive payments in select cryptocurrencies later this year. The company philosophy towards cryptocurrency is simple. Quote, it's about choice. MasterCard Vice President for Blockchain and Digital Asset Products, Raj Damandaran, wrote in a blog post. MasterCard is not attempting to pressure consumers or businesses into using crypto, he said. Rather, they are here to, quote, enable customers, merchants, and businesses to move digital value however they want. Demondaran later highlighted the four key items MasterCard is seeking in its crypto asset selection process. Consumer protection, strict compliance protocols, adherence to local laws, and consumer demand. According to Coindesk, MasterCard has previously interacted with crypto through partnerships with WireX and Uphold. But those programs were only for payments, not settlements. This will be the first time MasterCard will be accepting crypto payments without converting it to fiat for merchants. Next headline. As ETH futures launch, analysts say Ethereum's future looks bright. CME Group, the world's largest derivatives marketplace, launched an ETH futures product on Monday. In an interview with The Block, Tim McCourt, CME's managing director and global head of equity products, said ETH contracts were traded roughly 388 times to the tune of roughly 19,400 ETH or $33 million. McCourt said, quote, the response to Ether has been overwhelming. According to CME, each contract is made up of 50 ETH and priced in U.S. dollars, with a minimum trade size being five contracts. 
the enthusiasm about ETH futures spilled over into the price of Ether, which roared past $1,800 on Tuesday, over triple its price when the CME futures were announced in mid-December. It was still trading around there as of press time. Also, Ethereum 2.0 reached a milestone indicating a bullish future. Over 3 million ETH is now staked on the network. Chao Wang, co-founder of Masari Research, tweeted that the earliest traditional financial institutions that bought BTC are already looking at ETH, if not bought already. And rightfully so, the most used crypto network and plus future of finance, plus a potential deflationary monetary policy narrative make it extremely compelling. He projects the price of ETH will be between $5,000 and $20,000 by the end of this bull run. Next headline, Bitfinex repays Tether ahead of schedule. Last Friday, crypto exchange and sister company to Tether, Bitfinex, announced that it had repaid a $550 million loan to Tether. In a statement on its website, Bitfinex said, quote, All interest due on the loan has been paid. The loan has now been repaid early and in full, and the line of credit has been canceled. According to the block, quote, Tether initially opened a credit line worth $900 million for Bitfinex, of which $750 million was used by the exchange because Bitfinex was in need of short-term cash in 2018. At that time, Bitfinex lost access to $850 million in customer and corporate funds when they were seized by a payment processor, Crypto Capital. Bitfinex repaid two installments of $200 million on the loan in 2019 and 2020, leaving the balance at $550 million, which they paid off this week. This was the third and final installment of payments to close out the loan, which was due in November 2021. The financial lifeline has been heavily scrutinized since April 2019, when the New York Attorney General's office alleged Bitfinex used Tether's loan to secretly cover the exchange's shortfall. In other stablecoin news, Tether's market cap recently crossed the $30 billion mark. Next headline, DeFi Roundup. The St. Louis Fed released a DeFi research paper last Friday, which concluded that while DeFi is still, quote, a niche market with certain risks, it also has interesting properties in terms of efficiency, transparency, accessibility, and composability. The paper was written by Fabian Schar, a professor for distributed ledger technologies at the University of Basel. Next in the roundup, DeFi protocol Yearn utilized its treasury to pay back victims of the 9.7 million DAI flash loan attack last week. According to the Yearn.Finance Twitter account, this act of kindness, quote, was done as a one-off celebration of going through the DeFi rite of passage, which is one way to put it. Next in the DeFi roundup, Europe's largest telecommunications company by revenue, Deutsche Telekom, is now one of the main data providers to Chainlink, according to Coindesk. Chainlink, a DeFi oracle service, provides smart contracts with data from the real world, which means Deutsche Telekom is providing active data support for DeFi. Next headline, MEV is becoming a problem on Ethereum. A recent research report by Paradigm on Minor Extractable Value, aka MEV, highlighted the potential pitfalls that come with allowing miners to arbitrarily include exclude, and reorder transactions within blocks they produce. Paradigm defines MEV as, quote, the measure of profit a miner can make through their ability to arbitrarily include, exclude, or reorder transactions within the blocks they produce. The report indicates that while most miners are not exploiting this feature now, within the last three months, Paradigm says, quote, a small but meaningful portion of the hash rate 
has been observed exploiting MEV themselves, revenue sharing with traders rather than allowing permissionless fee auctions, and selling access to private memory pools. Paradigm believes miners will pursue even more exotic forms of MEV, potentially even colluding, which could end up harming users in Ethereum, creating a sort of invisible tax on the protocol and encouraging consensus instability. Additionally, Paradigm says MEV can be seen on Bitcoin as well, though it is less of an issue there. Crypto Quick Hits Twitter CFO is considering adding BTC to the company's balance sheet, as well as paying employees and vendors in the digital currency. Uber may accept payment in Bitcoin, but has no plans to purchase it as a reserve asset. Coindesk reports that Amazon is hiring for a new digital asset-based project in Mexico. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen spoke publicly on cryptocurrency for the third time, saying, quote, I see the promise of these new technologies, but I also see the reality. Cryptocurrencies have been used to launch the profits of online drug traffickers. They've been a tool to finance terrorism. In the oddest news of the week, actress Lindsay Lohan sold a crypto collectible on Rarible for $17,000, which was immediately flipped for $50,000 one hour later. Time for fun bits. German police stymied when trying to seize $81 million in Bitcoin. Reuters recently reported that German prosecutors have confiscated from a Bitcoin miner a stash of 1,700 Bitcoin, worth about $81 million as of press time. However, all they have is this hardware wallet. What they don't have is the man's password to unlock it. The Bitcoin miner was sentenced to two years in prison for installing Bitcoin mining software on other people's computers without asking permission, which is how he built his stash of 1,700 BTC. He already served his time and maintained his silence about the password throughout, while the police repeatedly tried to crack the code. As Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation tweeted, quote, This means they didn't confiscate anything. Not your keys, not your coins. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Michael, Genesis, and Genesis Treasury, be sure to check check out the links in the show notes. Don't forget, we are now on YouTube. Subscribe to the Unchained Podcast YouTube channel today. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Dan Edelbeck, Shashank, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.